0: Well, it's good to be back, Dad. Did I miss anything last week?
1: Well, it turns out that Razzle Khan's boyfriend, Ilya, probably was the Bitfinex hacker. At least he's pleaded guilty to that. The Curve smart contract was hacked probably by North Korea. Uh, It was a low-level exploit in the Viper smart contract code base. I think there was a compiler problem. Oh, there's a new Justin Sun-associated stablecoin, FDUSD, and it's probably backed by nothing.
0: Oh, sounds like I should ape in.
1: You know, make make those big stablecoin gains. Yeah, that doesn't happen much. And FedNow launched and nothing happened. Nothing yet. FedNow feels like it's going to be a slow burn. It's very hard to um, launch a network that competes with an existing network. You have to have something really attractive about it. And Bitcoin does that because everyone buys Bitcoin and thinks they're going to get rich. But what does Fed now have? Maybe just use Visa.
0: I saw that it leaked a letter from the SEC was sent to Coinbase before the SEC sued Coinbase. And the letter said, hey, look, we don't have to sue you. If you just delist everything but Bitcoin, we won't come after you. And of course, Coinbase said, no, thanks.
1: Yeah, that's not going to work.
0: They think they're going to catch them on a technicality, right? They think they're going to win this on a technicality. It's We'll see about that. But maybe they will, maybe they won't. But that was a little interesting. I think it shows us some insights. I mean, we've already kind of been able to infer that from everything that Gary has said and the SEC has said. But there it is in a document, says it right there. Everything but Bitcoin must go.
1: And obviously, Coinbase can't accept that because their entire business model is shilling altcoins on the front page and putting the... 2 cent altcoin next to 30,000k bitcoin and then noobs look at that and think, oh, maybe the altcoin will go to a dollar and I'll be rich. And then they buy it.
0: Yeah, so we'll see where it goes. But uh, it, it just, it's funny how it just really, if you don't build it like Bitcoin, you know, it, it's it's going to be a problem. They're going to come after it. That's what I read in there. The SEC is not done yet. I mean, I guess it depends where Coinbase goes. But I have the, I have this feeling that the SEC has a long list that they're working their way through.
1: I also saw some posts about payment issues. Amy Castor, the crypto critic and journalist, she actually had a note on this week's newsletter that Patreon was sort of not accepting payments correctly. They had a problem with their payments backend. So a lot of people who are supporting people on their their contributions were rejected. And then apparently Etsy has a seller strike in the UK because they've been holding up to 75% of seller earnings in escrow for around 90 days, I guess because they are concerned about chargebacks or something. I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure why they do that. But I mean, it's nuts, right? Because you sell something on Etsy, you charge 50 bucks, they end up holding like $35 of it. And they charge you all the fees for the transaction out of the 25% they give you. So you end up with $10 or something or 10 pounds when you thought you were getting 50. So it's just interesting how it turns out at scale, a lot of legacy payment platforms need to hold a lot of funds and things like that to uh, kind of protect the payment platform operator.
0: Yeah, we've had issues at JB when we've tried to work with companies that had had a payment processor in California or somewhere, like in this case, it was Patreon in California or somewhere in the States, and then they moved. Outside the States, it just flags, at least with our bank, it was like a fraud transaction flag. And so at a bank level, we had a problem getting the payments. And so I could imagine this is probably what Patreon is going through as well. And it's so when you run into these problems, you just feel like, oh, this system is so old and so broken. I can't believe it doesn't have the ability to transmit money. You can't transmit the dollar natively. Like It's just crazy to me in 2023 that there isn't a built in mechanism for me to send one U.S. dollar directly to you. And I have to go through like these five layers of middlemen to do it. And they try to make it all look instant. But even Even these days, it breaks down for
1: arbitrary reasons. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on August 4th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely with... Hey, it's me. It's Chris. Good to be back, everybody. Great to have you back. On today's show, we're going to discuss the... Fitch credit rating agencies downgrade of US government debt. How Tether apparently holds more US treasuries than Australia, and also a huge amount of reverse repo funds. Kind of interesting. In privacy, another payment issue, PayPal has locked and probably is going to steal the Graphene OS Foundation's donation account. In altcoins, WorldCoin has Lasted for about forty-eight hours since its launch before they announced that they are actually going to share all of the biometric data they collect with you know anyone they want so advertisers, law enforcement, government, whatever. And then there's some Bitcoin education and boosts. And we have a Bitcoin object that is uh, very heavy on software updates. And that's our show.
0: I came back to a busy show, so I I have not caught what's going on with Tether. I always worry about it. Am I going to feel better or worse after we chat
1: about this? So what? What is your fear about Tether specifically?
0: I don't really understand how they're actually backing the stablecoin. At the rate that Tether expands, I just don't grok how they could be actively managing a one-to-one or or any kind of real safe backing at all. But yet here we are these many years later and it hasn't blown up, even through some of the rough bear markets.
1: I think Tether is the story of being in the right place at the right time with sort of the right team and technology. Because I look at the Tether story as the story of there's a lot of money in mainland China that really wants to get out. And Tether provided a way for people with serious funds that couldn't cross the mainland China capital controls border. Because in mainland China, you're only allowed to send $50,000 per person out of the country every year which sounds like a lot of money but actually it's even harder than that because it requires a lot of paperwork they do tax checking to make sure you pay taxes on all of this and there are people who've made lots of money in China especially with real estate speculation and they have had pretty high economic growth for the past 20 years so that's different now and so there is just a desire to get your wealth away from the political risk and uncertainty in mainland China and into better financial products like the US stock market or Real estate in australia, Canada, California, etc so as a result, Tether solved that problem and got a huge amount of business slash market share because they were willing to do stuff that was pretty gray market slash straight out illegal in china to allow people to onboard or transfer their renminbi to digital tethers and then move them overseas. And so I think that was a big story of their success. They've gotten more popular with time, and recently they've released an attestation report that shows uh, about $86.5 billion in assets. I don't know exactly what the current Tether issuance is right now, but there was a thought about two years ago that Tether would lose out to U.S. regulated stablecoins like Circle But then we discovered that because Circle was highly concentrated in the U.S., Circle was actually more exposed to the U.S. banking crisis. And Silicon Valley and First Republic Bank, you know, these failures actually affected Circle and it briefly depegged and was trading for less than a dollar. And then since then, there's just been much more interest in Tether stablecoin versus regulated U.S. stablecoin. And I think that part of that is that the KYC and the the ability for the U.S. government to be like more involved with the stablecoin maybe makes U.S. regulated stablecoins less attractive to international holders, especially. But I think also a part of it is that Tether is kind of like the 21st century reflection of the euro-dollar system that grew up in the 60s and 70s, where we have everyone else in the world who's not in the U.S., who doesn't have a U.S. bank account, wants dollars, and how are they going to hold them? I think Tether is sort of the answer to that, at least temporarily. Right. I mean, it
0: seems in some ways, depending on what you're using it for, simpler than the process of getting actual U.S. dollars. And if you're just trying to move them around on the internet or play around in a casino or stash them into another country, you don't really want to go through the bank as it is anyways. I definitely understand why there's demand, and I hadn't really been able to grok why it's been more successful than, say, USDC, other than it's been around longer. But you make a good point. Like, Circle has certain vulnerabilities from some perspectives because of their regulated status. And you have to imagine, too, like, there's going to be some that are outside the U.S. that they want to play around, they want to get access to the dollar, but they ultimately probably assume the U.S. is going to create its own stablecoin equivalent. And when that happens, who knows what happens to things like Circles,
1: USDC. My read was that the U.S. stablecoin play is the largest stablecoin in the U.S. will become the corporate sponsor or the corporate partner of the U.S. government and kind of get a moat around their operation. So I think that's considered like the traditional. US corporatist resolution. But the challenging thing about a stablecoin is managing your backing because you can't just hold 86. Billion dollars in a bank account. It will get seized, it will get frozen, and it will be devalued by inflation. Because at the end of the day, the reason you offer a stable coin is so that you can take people's money and while they are going to, they might demand it at any time, you can play around with it in the meantime. And there are responsible ways to play around with it, such as having a highly liquid investment portfolio that provides relatively small returns, but can be sold for cash. Uh, very quickly in case you have a huge amount of withdrawals. If it sounds like I'm describing a bank, you would be correct. A stablecoin issuer, in my opinion, is a bank, except it doesn't really have the financing sort of loans, mortgages, whatever business yet. And we recently got an attestation from Tether about the constitution of their financial portfolio. This is not an audit. All of the information in this report could be false because it hasn't been checked by the accountant that prepared the attestation. So if what Tether told the accountant is true, then Tether has $86.5 billion of assets and $73.5 billion of them are Basically, US government debt. There's money market funds in there, there's cash and bank deposits, there's some non US Treasury bills or government debt, but the majority of it is a combination of US Treasury bills and overnight reverse repo agreements. So, Tether. They're not holding, you know, a percentage of U.S. government debt. I think it's still under 1% of U.S. government debt, but they hold more U.S. government debt than the nation of Australia and almost as much as Germany. So they're basically now a sovereign size holder of U.S. government debt. And that's just hilarious because the U.S. government definitely does not like Tether. And if it had an opportunity, would probably put it out of business.
0: I remember Tether actually had a press release where they announced that their new strategy would be to buy more U.S. debt. And I thought, is this a way to try to get in good? Like, hey, we know you're looking for buyers and uh, you say it's safe, so this is what we're going to buy into. I mean, is this a play to buy favor?
1: It doesn't seem like it would have a shot, but what are your thoughts there? I think it's mostly practical because even for all of its dysfunction, the U.S. sovereign debt market is probably the largest capital market in the world. And so if you're managing large amounts of money like this, and you need kind of short-term investment contracts that don't have counterparty risk, then U.S. government debt is basically the only thing you can invest in at this point in history. Does it make prosecuting Tether more complicated? Probably. But I imagine that's kind of a nice bonus as opposed to an actual strategy on Tether's (laughs) part. Okay. Wow. And they're still buying Bitcoin too, right? So they're conceivably also using that as some of their backing. Right. They claim to have uh, $1.6 billion in Bitcoin and $3.2 billion in precious metals that seem to be held at the LBMA. So that's mostly contracts to own gold in London. Well, so much for this bear cycle washing Tether out. Yeah, I think that uh, ship has sailed. It would take something like a government action against Tether at this point. But they've survived that before, so hard to see what (laughs) takes them down or if they just become the most profitable company in human history. Apparently, their profit per employee is ridiculous. And I think they made over a billion dollars of profit last quarter, mainly because they were invested in U.S. government debt as interest rates were going up. So the U.S. government is literally paying interest to Tether and making it an incredibly profitable enterprise.
0: What a hilarious web we weave. That is really something. It is a little crazy. I was surprised to see the veracity as to which Janet Yellen responded to uh, the downgrading that they received this week, which to me seems, I don't know, I don't know, to me seems kind of like a non-event. Didn't we get downgraded like over a decade ago and like nothing changed by one credit rating agency? But things have definitely changed. But what I was most surprised by was the sort of uh, surprised reaction by our government
1: officials. The sort of like, (gasps) how could you say such a thing? Don't you have current data? Right, because the argument was the economy is looking so good over the past couple of months. We got over this debt ceiling problem just a month ago. It's very kind of short-term, rose-colored glasses. You know how how dare you do this? But I found this very interesting because when I read about the Fitch decision, so Fitch is a credit rating agency to you know just lower U.S. debt from the triple A, which is the highest rating, to double A plus, and It seems like Fitch is just trying to do their job, kind of, because if you look at any metrics, the U.S. government's balance sheet is very problematic. You have a huge amount of unfunded liabilities in the form of uh, Social Security and Medicare, which are, they're unfunded programs, they're pay-as-you-go programs. And we know that mathematically, you can't, fund a pay-as-you-go program if the retirement population is smaller than the working age population. And that's the case today. So that needs to be bailed out at some point and brought onto the government's balance sheet or defaulted on. But the U.S. runs constant budget deficits, has no political ability to cut spending because there are effective voting blocks that will block any spending reduction. Because, you know, every time you reduce spending, you're hurting somebody. So there's just not the political ability to change this um, that trajectory in the U.S. government. On the other hand, when the U.S. is compared to other sort of A government debt issuers, you know, it just looks a lot worse. So it seems that I'm sure no one wanted to uh, downgrade U.S. government debt, but justifying why you wouldn't downgrade it requires a lot of hand-waving about how the U.S. is an exceptional case because it currently is the global reserve currency. And my sense, reading a couple articles on it, was that the big catalyst that kind of forced the decision is that the U.S. Seized all of the Russian central bank foreign denominated assets because it adds political risk to holding U.S. government debt and it changes the rules of the game in a sense because now U.S. government debt is not for everybody. It's only for people who can stay on the good side of the U.S. government. So that's significant political risk depending on who you are.
0: Treasury Secretary Yellen said that she said it was arbitrary and that their information was outdated and she argued that rather than looking at the debt to GDP, a better measure of sustainability, is inflation adjusted interest payments as a share of the economy. And that metric hasn't been flashing warning lights. What is she
1: talking about there? It's nonsense. She's basically saying, look, we can afford it because, sure, we pay a lot in interest, but look at all, of, look how big our economy is. But the fact is, U.S. tax revenues are decreasing, interest expense is increasing, and debt to GDP is over 250%. So it's just a situation where all of the traditional metrics of credit worthiness are flashing red, so they're trying to find a new metric that isn't flashing red. Mm-hmm.
0: I almost question then why the other credit rating agencies haven't issued the same downgrade, and shouldn't they be reviewing and looking at this? Because it almost
1: seems like their credibility comes into question because of the mathematics of it are just so obvious. I can't find a specific reference, but I believe that Standard Poor's got punished after they downgraded. During the Obama administration, right? I recall, right? They got sued. Yeah, there were some problems there. One issue with the downgrade is that there are certain rules for um, some institutional holders of debt, like pension funds, that they can only hold AAA-rated debt. So the S&P Global downgrade, I think maybe didn't matter as much because they were only one credit rating agency. So like the average rating was still AAA or something. But now that two have downgraded the U.S., it turns out that a lot of those holders of U.S. debt, they were anticipating this downgrade and they changed the rules around their investment strategy so that there was a carve out that they could always hold U.S. debt or AAA rated debt. This essentially protects large holders of U.S. government debt from having to be forced sellers in case of, a downgrade around U.S. government credit uh, worthiness.
0: Yeah, I I believe I was just listening to CBS talk about a poll that had been recently run. And something like 60% of respondents said that the economy is in a bad state and they are worried it's going to get worse. And then you have Yellen and the White House working really hard to try to change the message on that. And they've launched this campaign around Bidenomics. And the the reason behind that is they feel like the public just isn't looking at the right things. And so they want to emphasize what's going well. But I feel like the proof is in the public sentiment. Like Nobody has really recovered from the price increase that we've just been through and yes inflation is decreasing but the prices that have increased are still so high that we're still struggling to pay our grocery bills and right here in Washington right now our gas prices are astronomical they're like $5 a gallon it's just ridiculous for for you know for the comparison to the rest of the country
1: right but those gas prices are are not high because there's Constrained global gas demand. In Washington gas prices are high because Washington state doesn't have an income tax. And so the state generates most of its operating revenue from like taxes on cars and taxes on. Yes, my point is is that people are still feeling, I believe, really tight. Like the
0: the the, the federal government's behaving like, well, now that inf- the rate of inflation is decreasing, sh- everybody should f- just feel great. But the reality is is that we just went through astronomical price increases, and we're still digesting that, and we're still digesting the rate hikes. And I think the public knows that, and so I, we're, we have this big difference in what the people running the country how they see the economy and how the people that are living in the country experience the economy. And there's a seem like a wider and wider gap there. 60% number is pretty huge.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the interesting thing about this downgrade story is it gives us an opportunity to ask the question that Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell and the U.S. government doesn't really want to talk about, which is how exactly does this story play out? If the U.S. government says that its debt is currently at 128 percent of GDP, but then we say that, well, if you add in your off balance liabilities, you're way over two hundred and fifty percent of you know debt to GDP, then we think that there's no mathematical way for the US government to pay down this debt burden. We're not saying pay it off. The U.S. actually paid off all of its national debt at one point, and it was actually a big problem because it killed the market for U.S. government debt. It meant that they actually couldn't issue more debt later when they needed to. So governments generally have a certain amount of debt outstanding. But the problem, in my view, or one of them, is that the U.S. government debt market is actually a source of global dollar liquidity. Another way of saying that is that U.S. government debt is a type of financial dollar money that is quite useful for international financial transactions. And so in a sense, the U.S. government has to produce enough of it for the euro-dollar world to consume, for this world to function. But at the same time, the U.S. government balance sheet, the sort of taxes versus uh, expenses of the u s government have to look kind of sane enough for everyone in the world to still think that buying u s government debt is a uh, you know a safe idea, and number two doesn't work anymore. and part of that issue is that the u s does have political problems that are impeding a reasonable budget that you know kind of takes into account financial reality and I'll just add.
0: The two leading presidential candidates don't have anything in their platform about reducing spending
1: or anything like that. Yeah, because it's politically impossible now. But the other side of this problem is that the U.S. economy as a share of global GDP is shrinking. And so the U.S. currently is not really large enough to generate the amount of dollar debt that the world needs to function. Or at least that's an argument put forward by Jeffrey Schneider, who's my favorite euro dollar expert. So I think that, you know, there are just these contradictions in our current status quo that have to be resolved. And one event on the road to resolution is U.S. debt downgrades. I think the other story is that when you have an unsolvable government deficit situation, you eventually end up at some sort of inflationary default because you don't want to outright default. That's like throwing in the towel. Game over. What you want to do is print money to pay off your debt, and the U.S. government has the ability to do this. Maybe doing that explicitly would be too shocking and too risky in terms of inflation, but you could also do it quite subtly by say, financial repression, by making it harder to move assets outside of the U.S. and inside the U.S. to basically control interest rates, push them down to the point where interest rates paid on U.S. government debt are lower than the rate of inflation. And if this results in reduced demand for U.S. government debt, then the Federal Reserve buys all the debt and essentially you're printing money. Would this result in price inflation? Probably. Would it be politically feasible? I think likely. Absolutely.
0: And it's status quo. Because for 30 years, the quality of life has been declining and, you know, people, it's the boiling frog thing. People just sort of adapt over time and you can do it behind the scenes and you allow for the the political mess that we have to continue without any hard fixes or changes. It's a wonderful solution for them. (laughs) But I wonder if. You know, there's something that sticks out when your buddy uh, Larry, F- Larry Fink from BlackRock was on, uh, I think it was Fox Biz. One of his first television appearances, he said that uh, Bitcoin is an international currency or he cut himself off and said, then said an asset or something that is divorced from sovereign currency issues and, and political issues. And I, you got to wonder if they're looking at this situation and they're doing the math and they're looking for an alternative. And if that's one of the reasons they're making their move on Bitcoin, I mean, obviously there's money to be made, but that statement that Larry made on TV about how you can invest in it and it's not, you know, it, it's sort of hedging against currency issues from different nations. He could be talking about the U.S.
1: Absolutely. And obviously a BlackRock Bitcoin ETF would not provide you any of those benefits, but it's great marketing, in my opinion. It might provide BlackRock those benefits. <laughs> This downgrade thing it's like the confluence of every economic theme I talk to talk about all the time, so I just had to put it in but in, in a way, it's not really a news story because currently there is no alternative than the u s dollar for you know treasury management for both corporates and governments, so everyone's stuck with it for the moment, but I think that these news like this downgrade, you know, this is part of the story of the world looking for other solutions. And obviously we think Bitcoin is probably going to be the number one solution eventually.
0: We may not even be able to fully appreciate the demand for Bitcoin as this plays out over the years. How do you feel about switching gears to talking about one of my favorite projects, Graphene OS, which is an alternative Android OS for pixel devices that is de-Googled. And then you can run some of the Google stuff in a sandbox that makes it essentially limited to user permissions, so it can only do what you permit it. I really like it. I've been running it now since November. And they had some rough, rough news this last week uh, with PayPal.
1: I would have put it in our beginning complaints about payments, but this is also one of my favorite projects. And their PayPal donation account was locked with over $4,000 inside. And this is not a huge project. They don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars. On their Twitter, you can see they're asking for $3,500 to buy four-pixel phones so that they can do testing on them. 4000 bucks is... A lot of money to this group. And uh, their account was frozen. And they think it was probably because they accept donations through other means as well, including cryptocurrency. The funny thing is, they actually pay all of their developers in cryptocurrency. But because adoption is still pretty low, they get the majority of their donations via PayPal and GitHub sponsors.
0: Yeah. In fact, I think with a few exceptions, they're paying just about everybody with Bitcoin internally. I've donated to the project using Bitcoin before. And they are looking at doing lightning, but, you know, they don't really, I think, necessarily have the infrastructure for it. I told them, though, that if they end up with a lightning address, I'd happily put them in the splits for a bit to help, you know, send them a little bit of sats their way. It's frustrating because PayPal can just arbitrarily shut you down. It's like a rug pull. They were trying to get about $4,000 out of their account and move it around for uh, finance reasons, you know, for the project. And when they went to get the money, that's when PayPal Put the kibosh on, right? Like PayPal has no problem running for six months collecting $4,000 for you. But then when you go to get that money, that's when the account gets flagged and everything gets shut down. And of course, then they're left with nothing and very little communication from PayPal. I think they did get some basically 90%, 80% resolution and they got access to the to the primary funds again. But it's a, it's a scary thing, you know, as a project when that's your lifeblood and PayPal can just turn it off. And I... You know, if you want to do, if Graphene OS wants to run as a project for a long time, they have to remove these middlemen between them and their user base.
1: Maybe a silver lining to this story was that after the news broke, someone donated 39 Ethereum to their foundation, which is about $65,000. So they were, they've announced that they're going to hire another full-time dev as a result.
0: Of course, it was all tied to Tornado Cash, but that's fine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I wonder get, where I they get. sold it, right? This has been a
0: problem for another open source project I follow. right after the Tornado Cash stuff went down, somebody made a big old donation to redox OS, I think it was. And then it was like eighty thousand dollars worth, and then the developer found out that it was all tied to Tornado Cash and it was all
1: pretty much unusable Ethereum. Right. I mean, and I don't see the issue. Just because North Korea uses money and I use money, you know, what's the big deal? Also, I got that wrong. The donation came before the PayPal news.
0: Well, there you go nice to see some support over there and I'm, I'm glad they got a
1: decent resolution um but i oh boy i hope they get that lightning stuff set up and just a plug for graphene os the reason that i have a smartphone is graphene os if it didn't exist i think i would probably go flip phone and just, I don't know, carry my laptop around or something. It's Android
0: finally tamed, right? Like the Google stuff has no more extra privileges than any other app you install. And when you install Graphene OS by default, there's nothing Google on there. Like there's no Google Play
1: services. And they give you easy steps to get that stuff
0: installed and sandboxed
1: properly if you do need it. Now, I'd like you to tell us more about WorldCoin and the context around it, because you were the one who told me that Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, was also a founder of WorldCoin. But I also see tech publications publishing articles about, hey, we send a journalist to get their eyes scanned by the WorldCoin Death Star orb that steals your retina. So it seems like this is kind of a thing that exists in like the tech news space. I'm wondering if it has coincided with, you know, your Linux content.
0: It's it's mostly coinciding with the rise of AI, thanks to Sam Altman. The thing that you need to know about WorldCoin right off the top is that it has a 25% pre-mine set aside for the founders and for investors and all that. 25%, I think, pre-mine right off the top of WorldCoin. The other thing you have to remember is that when Dad and I looked at the project, it's really an MVP. They've basically taken an SDK, swapped out a few parts, added a couple of layers on top, and they're calling it, you know, international currency. So the idea with WorldCoin is to tie a hashed version of your eyeball scan to an ID that is tied to a wallet and they want to have this international currency that can be verified just by scanning your eyeballs. And then they can, uh, you know, I guess you would spend it or whatever you might do with it. And it creates a global hash database of everyone's, I think it's their iris. And then they say, well, we're not actually keeping the image. But the, the thing about that hash is if they can rescan your eye, it'll, it'll rematch. So it's essentially just as good as keeping your actual iris. Ha- the hashing of it is just a storage mechanism, really. Um, they can catalog everyone's eyeball with the system. And if you go get your eyeball scanned, they'll give you like 25 world coin or something like that. And you, so you get a little account, and they put the 25 world coin in there, no doubt. It's a little stash from the pre-mine. And uh, you can also be an ambassador and mana booth with the orbs. And uh, amazingly, I've have seen videos of people standing in line to get their twenty five world coin and get their iris scanned. And ultimately, the pitch is: you don't want a bot impersonating you, do you, Dad? Like, what if these? Generative bots get so smart that they go online and start pretending they're dad on social media and they embarrass you or they stall God forbid they spread misinformation. The only way to prevent misinformation spread by bots that are pretending to be you or maybe the president or Arnold Schwarzenegger, who knows, is through this eyeball authentication world coin system. This is their pitch. And uh, they've had some pushback this week. They've been kicked out of a few places, and they also immediately rolled over and showed their belly and announced that world governments would have
1: access to the data and information. Just contact us we're happy to share. <laughs> I think what's so preposterous about their stated marketing to me is that they imagine a world where open AI has created artificial general intelligence and this machine god that has been, you know, made by man is just smart enough and also trolly enough to want to do like misinformation on Twitter but Somehow doesn't realize that you know by controlling all global information networks, you know it can also just like wipe out humans or subvert them and you know turn them into slave labor or something. So it's like this weird Goldilocks zone of we created God, but he just wants to troll us on Twitter. And Worldcoin solves for that. It's absolutely preposterous. Like the world they describe that needs Worldcoin is uh, is really stupid in my view. And the other issue is their tokenomics. Because WorldCoin has a total supply of 10 billion tokens, but the circulating supply is 143 million. 43 million of those are the pre-mine or part of the pre-mine. And 100 million of those were controlled by the WorldCoin company or foundation and loaned to market makers. So you've got a $20 billion float. You know, that's your, that's your total supply. But your circulating supply is 143 three million which is less than one percent this is a pump and dump you know this is how you create An artificially high market cap number to grab headlines and do marketing but then the circulating supply is completely controlled by insiders and they can basically manage the price and sell into any increases in demand which will happen theoretically will happen because of the marketing and since there's no real market any interest in buying it results in sort of an immediately peaking price and then the insiders dump their bags into that peak in demand. That is exactly what you see if you look at the all time price chart right now. Exactly what you see.
0: And there is a video uh, from just a couple of days ago going around from the WorldCoin co founder implicitly stating that they do exactly what you just said to manage the market price of WorldCoin. They're actively managing the price through these processes that you just described, and they just are paying it. Um, <laughs> it's sounds very centrally managed to me. They've also somehow didn't account for the fact that people would just immediately turn around and sell their WorldCoin account and ID. There has now developed a black market where like people are just taking 30 bucks and for 30 bucks they'll sell, you can sell your World ID. The whole thing is no longer legitimate. It's, I can't believe they didn't think, consider that. I guess WorldCoin is aware of the issue and has proposed solutions to resolve it, but they haven't rolled out a solution yet seems like that's the whole point of the scan. It's incredible that that's a problem. And then on, on top of all of that, you just you have this sort of like useless utility of this thing. Like there's if there's no market that develops to to buy goods with this, then it's completely worthless because it's not a store of value. Right. It's not going it's not a scarce asset that's going to appreciate over time as people buy into world coin right they are they they are going to intentionally manage the price so it can be used as a almost as like a stable coin even though it's not a stable coin but they're going to manage it like one I just don't I don't get why anyone would want this it's you know the under the underlying technical implementation isn't very good and the people managing it like Sam Altman a few months ago tweeted that he was shocked that there'd be pushback to the iris scanning in their field testing no one had a problem with it everybody thought the iris scanning was so cool he's just shocked Somehow Sam Altman managed to miss the digest of financial markets and people where they're at right now with the complete exhaustion of the surveillance industry and the complete exhaustion of the failed central managed financial policies. And he's managed to put it all into one package and completely miss the mark. And when you look at the price chart, you can see when the money gets managed, the price goes up, then they dump and, it, and it just ha- it's happened at least one, two, three times uh, in, in the last, you know. Two, three months. Yeah. I'd say in the last month,
1: even. They're just kind of, you can see where they're propping it up. Sam Altman really seems like a character from Silicon Valley. Do I have that right? Or is there something else here?
0: You know, he tried to get ahead of all this by going to Congress and trying to scare everyone about the dangers of AI. You know, he tried to kind of create a market fever around this. But the issue is, is that um, I think they were intending to launch WorldCoin in the U.S., But the project they were based on wasn't ready yet, and that delayed them. And then this securities crackdown and all this from the SEC came in. And so in the U.S., if you get your face scanned, you don't get the 25 coins because they're concerned that securities laws would be applicable to them because it clearly is a security. And so you just don't get it in the States right now. Now, if you go somewhere else with weaker securities laws, then you get your 25 coins.
1: But the thing is, the U.S. doesn't care if you scanned an iris in Kenya or if you scanned it in the U.S., The U.S. thinks that the entire global financial system is run by the U.S. So it's just a dumb strategy. Everything about this is stupid.
0: And they're already under investigation in France and Germany, right? So that's just going (laughs) to spread.
1: Can I just ask you a question about how we unlock wallets with our eyes? Because I don't wear sunglasses all the time. So if the key to my wallet is my eyes, wouldn't anyone with a camera be able to unlock my wallet? Or is it, you know, the iris scan requires a special camera held really close to your eye? And if that's the case, then is everyone going to buy a special iris camera just to unlock their WorldCoin wallet on their phone? I don't know if you have to scan it every time
0: you want to unlock. I'm not sure how the, you know, the technical unlocking works or if it's just when you have to verify your identity. The orbs, by the way, are completely closed source systems. We have no idea what's in these orbs. We have no idea how they store the information, what they're truly scanning. They are literally closed silver boxes.
1: Silver balls. Yeah, really, yeah.
0: If you're trying to build trust,
1: you'd think you'd start with the orb device being open source hardware. Like, that's where you start. And the orb looks like something from a sci-fi horror movie like it's about to grow arms and legs and replace your head or something
0: were you surprised by how quickly they rolled over and said yes world governments you can have access to our data i mean it was inevitable i'm not surprised it happened but were you surprised how quickly it happened it was like within a week of
1: launch not at all not at all now <laughs> if you're a corporation you exist because of laws that are enforced by governments yep. that allow the creation yep. of corporations like you're going to fight the thing that created you you know come on
0: uh I, you know before it launched i thought no way this no way! This is the litmus test for like how stupid people are. This is it right here. And then, of course, now this is just you know the Worldcoin people sharing this on Twitter. But of course, all week I've saw videos of people lined up around the corner to get their
1: damn eyeball scanned. I've gotten feedback that the show is better when we disagree, so I'm going to disagree and say that hex is the litmus test of human stupidity.
0: Oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. Like with with Worldcoin, you got to get your eyeball scanned. It's like there's this whole physical process. Like you got to go somewhere. You got to wait in line like an idiot and then you got to get your eyeball scanned by this mystery machine so you can get this mystery coin. I just I don't see it. Where with Hex? Hex is going to change the world brother.
1: Richard Hart, the founder of Hex, who I think is a, he's definitely got other criminal convictions in the past. He has been, I think, sued by somebody, maybe the SEC for Hex as an unregistered securities offering. And the thing about Richard Hart is that he's tried to avoid getting sued for offering unregistered securities by explicitly stating that he's not actually going to pay you any money and that all the money you give him, he's going to spend on fancy watches and fancy cars and then show it off on Twitter. He's a pretty cool guy, isn't he? That's cool. He was in some sort of live stream and he was sitting on a throne. (laughs) You know, I mean, he's really bonkers. But I remember talking to an acquaintance who was who fell for the hex trap. And it was really wild because I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And it's obviously a scam. And the response was like, but why would Richard do that? Like he's already rich. And I'm like, Richard is a scumbag. He wants to be more rich. You know, he's gonna Scam you? <laughs> I think he had some
0: Hex movie that was in the works too, because I saw I saw some clips of that going around. So he was about to really put the whole thing on blast. You're right; it is the SEC that's going after him. And I never really got the the draw. It's an ERC twenty token, so that's always a red flag right there. And I can't remember, but like this whole like certificate of deposit thing just never really registered with me. The whole thing
1: never quite really made sense to me. Part of the reason why it's so bad is that it was a scam targeting less sophisticated people, like not crypto native people. They were going after mamas and papas. And
0: You might recall they had a website where you could go to their HEX website and it would basically advertise itself as a massive savings account yield type deal. And they would say, if you know, if you put your money in today or if you put your money in three months, you would have made this much yield. And they had this big calculator on their website that made it just look like impossible gains if you just put your money in even a couple of months ago.
1: Basically, people understand yield. They understand interest. They like getting something from nothing. That's, I think, the source of like staking protocols and staking rewards. You know, it's because it feels like a bond. It feels like a sort of more traditional investment. So Hex was the dumbest implementation of this because it's a certificate of deposit on the blockchain. But the problem is, yeah, maybe it like supposedly functions like a certificate of deposit where you lock up hex so you can't sell it. And this is of course is the goal. Richard wants you to lock up hex so that he can sell hex to you. That's his goal. He doesn't want you to sell hex, he wants you to buy hex because it's an illiquid altcoin and so it's very easy for the price to just go to zero. And once it goes to zero, it's very hard to sort of bring it off of zero because it's worthless. So if you try to pump the price to get people more interested, you then you get other people who they previously had zero dollars in their account as a result of holding thousands of hex. So the moment it's worth five dollars, they'll sell it all. You know, so you you get you get into this sort of death spiral. So his goal was you can lock up hex using, I guess, an Ethereum smart contract, maybe. I mean, or it might have been something dumber, like you just send it to Richard. I, I don't know. But the longer you lock it up, the more you get back. And hex has this whole. Mexican-Spanish meme thing around it, because people who hold hex call themselves hexicans, And there was a lockup, like the longest lockup you could do is like 20 years or something. And they called it cuatro, cinco, seis. And for I, I don't know, I don't know exa- exactly understand the numerology, but like cuatro, cinco, seis was like the super hex bull lock up your hex forever and you're going to be rich when it unlocks or something and people were doing that so it was all about creating this community kind of brainwashing them into the hex memes and then getting them to lock up hex and you know dumping hex on them and richard bought himself more cars
0: that is a winning strategy you know i i see other see other guys doing this right now like bitboy crypto and whatnot you know, the other thing that this sort of revealed, and, and not a surprise, I suppose, but uh, Uniswap, which is sort of, you know, one of the premier DeFi, decentralized finance marketplaces, was able to centrally delist Hex in a moment's notice. And I I suppose, whatever, but how how
1: decentralized does it sound if they can just pull it like that? They must have just taken... Because they control the front end, the front end is a website that then refers to their on-chain smart contracts, right? So they just mm-hmm. probably took down the page for HEX, right? So I, I guess the smart contract still must be there.
0: It's just so when they say they've quote halted HEX trading, it sounds like there is a group of people that the SEC could find and go after me cuz obviously there's some central manager that can list and delist these different securities. It's not that that doesn't sound very decentralized to me, but whatever. I just thought that was interesting how that works. It's defi until it isn't, until it needs to be centrally managed. And even if it's just a front end, it's still a group of people that they could find eventually.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at the news story. Uniswap, a decentralized exchange has halted the trading of HEX. How do you halt it on a decentralized exchange, right? That is a exactly great That sounds a bit centralized to me. I don't know. Yeah, last thing about Hex, I once watched a video where this influencer on YouTube was like showing you how to buy Hex on Uniswap. And, you know, he had like a really funny name, like Huddlebro or Huddle Dog, And he had a, you know, a great European kind of Eurotrash accent. And he bought something like $20 of Hex on Uniswap and completely affected the price. Like, th- like it was so thinly traded that tw- a $20 buy increased the price by like 30 or 40%. Uh, this is a scam all the way down
0: Poor, poor fools. Well, you know, I'm
1: sure Richard Hart will make a big uh, stink about it on social media and claim he's going to fight it to the end and all that. Right. And before we come off as being too mean about everyone who got scammed on Hex, your Bitcoin dad wrecked himself, lost most of his Bitcoin in a multisig accident. So, like, I'm an idiot, too.
0: I think many pathways to Bitcoin come from the altcoins. It is true. People, even with my son, before we had a discussion about it. To him, it's like, well, Bitcoin's too expensive, but look at this Doge. I could get that. Aren't they all going up? And for a while they were. Um, And so if you're just trying to get in early and all cryptocurrency seems the same, I can kind of understand why you start with something like a Hex or something like a a Doge, perhaps, but then you get wrecked and you learn, right? You learn through getting burned. Sometimes people listen to the Bitcoin dad pod and they learn the easy way, but a lot of us
1: learn the hard way. Right. And we've had listeners who have asked about other projects and I mean, it's interesting to look at them and try to somewhat objectively evaluate them. I mean, at the end of the day, this is all very experimental. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen to the U.S. dollar, let alone Bitcoin. So, you know, take take it all with a grain of salt and obviously don't bet more than you can lose on anything. Well, buy DadCoin. that That's going to go to the moon, right? Because it's going to be based
0: on podcast downloads. And as long as the pod grows, the coin goes up in value
1: somehow. We need to offer DadCoin on the base protocol from Coinbase because then we could yeah. do a... What is it? Withdraw liquidity suddenly, also known as a pump and dump. Like the bald, wasn't it called bald? Which I guess is a reference to Brian Armstrong's head. Yeah, you could (laughs) exchange your bald coin for your dag coin. So you could have the bald dag coins. There you go. Wow. Nailed it. (laughs) Nailed it. We need to cut this section. We can't give away the milk for free like this. Right. Damn, it's good. Well, the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought
0: to you by Jupiter Broadcasting, my little podcast network over there where we're creating pods just about every day. Coda Radio just came out as we record and uh, episode 529. We dig into some old dirty tricks that Microsoft used to play back in the Windows heyday and then kind of use that to set the context for more restrictive rules around APIs that Apple is forcing on developers, and then get into Google's new API, which is called the Web Integrity API, which is really about building a solid identification of you inside the browser, so that way if you turn off tracking cookies and all that, they still know who you are and can advertise to you. We dig into all those APIs and have a discussion around that in Coder 529. You can find that in all the great Jupyter Broadcasting shows over at jupyterbroadcasting.com.
1: That sounds like everything i like to listen to in a single podcast (laughs) good we try in the spirit of michael dominic your co-host i'll pour myself a whiskey and uh, give it a listen. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's always best enjoyed with a drink. And you know what else is good after a couple drinks? The Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 262 is out. And it seems that we are out of the summer doldrums because there's quite a bit of news about conversations on the Lightning Dev and Bitcoin Dev mailing list, as well as a huge number of code documentation um, changes. I said software updates, but actually it's code and documentation changes. Yeah. And a, a lot of improvements to Core Lightning. I'm getting more and more tempted. One interesting thing about Core Lightning in here. There's an issue where you can have two parties who are in a Lightning channel, and if they don't want to pay the on-chain fees, like if they're if settling the channel, the channel balance is sort of less than the amount of on-chain fees to close the channel, you might have a party who doesn't want to close the channel and kind of leave the channel in sort of a weird, unconfirmed, bad state. And so Core Lightning has uh, two changes, which apparently resolve this problem in some situations. But I thought it was interesting because it kind of gets to a critique of Lightning that that we've heard more often uh, recently, which is that Lightning doesn't work for certain micro transactions. There are some Lightning channels that are not valuable enough to close on chain. And as a result, the security model of Lightning fails. I don't think, um, I think it's kind of cool to criticize Lightning right now. I mean, I think it always had um, issues around liquidity, routing, and um, security when the amounts on certain sides of the channel got very small. But it's just something to keep in mind. It
0: does feel like the uh, the summer slowdown has ended because we've also got a BTC Pay server. Just a small update this week, but nice to see. And then also uh, some consensus on you know just documenting things on the mailing list and all those kinds of things that just people are addressing now that they're back to work.
1: It's a uh, it's a it's a media update this week. Check it out in the show notes. Well, remember, you can get in touch with the show, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at Dadpod on Twitter. Also consider joining the show Matrix Room. Now, I think it's because you're back, but we have quite a few more boosts this week. I know. I think the math would
0: work the other way. Because I was gone, you got more boosts. There's only one way to find out is if this episode gets more boost than last episode, then we'll know. And our first boost comes in from Hanigan or Hanaga I always get it wrong, but I like I like trying. Uh, for seventy three thousand sats, So our baller this week coming in from episode ninety one using Fountain FM across two boosts. His great show. I still think Plan B provides some great insight into the Bitcoin community. If nothing else, he's proved it's impossible to plot to apply a rational model to predict the highs and lows in Bitcoin. There is value in that. He says I always get great value from the show. Thanks, Dad.
1: I think he actually boosted last week, but that 30,000 is new. So thank you, Hanaga. Marquis Gustav-Jorgen Jaeger von Kreunkenstein boosts in 44,444 sats. That's like a mega death boost in Chinese. (laughs) <laughs> I like it. Wow, this is quite quite a boost. Let me let me try this, honored father and Chris. Hey, with abundant joy, I take up my quill to offer thanks for the kindly Bitcoin teachings thou hast bestowed through thy weekly podcast. Despite the scoffling of skeptics, you saw virtue in the peer-to-peer digital coin week after week. Your wisdom unfurled its intricate workings that I might gain knowledge. <laughs> oh my God thanks to thine keen tutelage i have joined coins and safeguarded my keys (laughs) thy sage counsel has secured my wealth against the whims of government mint no paltry (laughs) words nor weight of gold could convey my gratitude for the rich knowledge thou hast freely given thou art a true gent of forward thinking i pray thy wise podcast shall continue until the end of days for i cherish each lesson Please accept the humble thanks of thy devoted offspring for thy gentle lessons in the Bitcoin way. Thou hast my love always. Thy loving child, Yegsi. <laughs> 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 well, oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you, Yegsi. It's a uh, goodness. That's a that's a great boost. That might be one of my favorites in a while. That's uh that's and you did a good job. You We're going to frame job. that one. <laughs> Yegsy continues, Dearest father, Alack and forsooth, your lightning channel shows in disrepair, thus prohibiting your humble offspring from dispatching a charitable boost upon its wires this week. (laughs) Though young Christopher did receive his allotted portion, I am regrettably unable to transmit thine own payment owing to this unhappy outage, Yegsy. Well, thank you so much. I believe it's time to deal with that. So Mm. I may have to perform a node migration. This might result in channels closing, but uh, it might be time to move to Cora Lightning and attempt more on-hand liquidity management. Because on my dashboard, I see uh, sufficient inbound liquidity, but it just might be distributed across channels that are not particularly good for routing.
0: Got to do a little light nectomy over there. Halleck came in with a 1,000 sats and said, you do a great job holding down the show when Chris is out. I definitely laugh out loud as you apologize after many of the segments. Those are the views I am here to consider. Well, thank you, Halleck. It's that's, that's nice to hear that the uh, standalone dad pod is enjoyed because it makes me uh, feel good about every now and then getting away and having a little family time. Thank you so much. Oppie
1: 1984 boosts in 4,000 sats. I think the climate and energy discussion is an important discussion to have and welcome it on the show. It may not be everyone's favorite topic, but it's a topic we as Bitcoiners have to discuss. Anti-Bitcoiners are using this issue to undermine Bitcoin, and if we don't address it and come up with solutions, then we as a community are allowing them to shape the narrative and turn the wider populace against us. Like paying bills, it's not fun but it has to be addressed. Well, thanks so much for the feedback.
0: Yeah, you know, Abhi, I I think I agree too, right? I think the biggest threat, the single biggest threat to Bitcoin is a lack of adoption and a lack of engagement with the network. And I think one of the single best ways to disincentivize concerned citizens into investing in Bitcoin is the energy and environmental narrative. I think it is probably the most potent weapon against Bitcoin. I think it is Starting to suffer, we've seen some very pro-environmental organizations and think groups recently release papers that suggest that Bitcoin has a positive role in the ESG world. But uh, I still think it's a massive threat vector for Bitcoin because, again, a lack of adoption is, I think, the number one threat to Bitcoin. And how would you do that? By making it so evil because of the environmental impact that you would never consider doing it because you know you wouldn't want to be responsible for boiling the ocean. Scott boosts in with five thousand sats. Your take on nuclear energy as an alternative is on point. You should look into small modular reactors, SMRs, which are small enough to be built in a factory and then can be deployed all over the world while also being orders of magnitude safer than a traditional reactor. They're modular and can be integrated into factories, mining facilities, etc. I've had the privilege of working alongside experts in the field, although I'm no expert myself, and they are very excited about SMRs, but often bring up how their SMR work has been delayed by many years at this point by overregulation and slow licensing as well as the need to relicense many existing designs nuclear power could work but we got scared and regulated it into the ground hopefully someone in the world can break through that barrier quick follow-up on the last boost though because smrs are so easy to produce in mass it means developing nations could theoretically install them in place of coal plants and completely skip the carbon-based step of wealth production that the West had to go through.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting technology. It's just quite speculative at this point because, like the booster talks about, we don't see a lot of these SMRs because of regulation and because, you know, it's just legally difficult to get licensed to produce and distribute and sell them. Another thing I'd like to mention is, um, I think there is a nuclear documentary on YouTube being produced by Eric Townsend. And it should be really interesting because listening to part of that story apparently the pressurized water reactor design that's become kind of the standard nuclear reactor design was the worst option and the reason we have that is because richard nixon was from california and you know basically pressured the u.s government to you know choose contracts produced by californian companies with this kind of substandard design so it's funny because you know there's sort of uh All these bad things that come from Richard Nixon, all the corn syrup in your food, that's indirectly a result of Nixon's uh, food policies. Inferior reactor design, Richard Nixon. Going off the gold standard, Richard Nixon.
0: Yeah, that's the big one, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I know he. Uh, I know people like to give him credit for the Environmental Protection Agency, but the gold standard is a tough one. I whatever. Um, I want to say thank you to everybody who boosted in. These are always a nice highlight to end the pod on. I always enjoy the boost themselves. They also often will kick off an unplanned discussion that's a lot of fun too. So, thank you for supporting the show and having an ongoing discussion with us. If you'd like to participate, you can do it in a couple different ways. If you really love your podcast app we'll keep it just get albie get albi.com they just announced a brand new feature where you get to control the seed key and all that kind of stuff all that's on their blog i don't really i'm not up to date on it but albie just seems to be going from strength to strength so you get albi.com You top it off directly in the app or with something like the Cash App or RoboSats. It's all in the Lightning Network, so you do you. And then you head over to the Podcast Index. Right there, when you find the Bitcoin Dad pod, they've got it embedded on our entry once you have Albi set up. And you can just boost from the web. You keep your dang podcast app. If you're ready to go to the future, podcastapps.com. Head on over there and check out some of the new podcasting 2.0 apps like Fountain and Podverse and Castomatic. They have the boosting built right in and a bunch of other really nice features that more and more podcasts are taking advantage of. I've discovered some phenomenal new podcasts that are really utilizing the new features of Podcasting Toto and it's exciting, and it's fun, and it feels like a whole new age. You go get, you go get one of those apps and try it out. See what we're talking
1: about. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on August 4th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with oh, me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.